Well, it is with um, humility, but great joy, um, that I have the privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Would you please pray with me now? Our God in heaven, we thank you for your great love. You are a friend of sinners. This is such great news. We would be so lost without you. We pray now as your people that you would help us. Help us as we go about this life that you call us to live. That you'd show us your grace and your mercy even this morning so that we could go forward as as humble people and dependent people on you. And I pray that we would we would grow in understanding even now from this time, this precious time in your word. Amen. What if commercials told the truth? What if all those advertisements and those billboards were actually honest with you about what they were selling? I mean, what would happen if internet companies actually were honest about the rising rates that they're selling you? What would happen if, uh, if, if those, those pictures of, those, of, of all that food that restaurants show you is actually an accurate description of the meal you get? What would happen if cell phone companies uh, were honest about the, the planned obsolescence of their device? What would happen if they were actually honest? Now, I, the people who make these commercials aren't necessarily evil or mean, but there's, there's a strategy when someone makes a commercial, right? They're, they're trying to sell you something. They're trying to convince you that you can't go on in life unless you have blank. They're trying to make you dissatisfied with what you currently have. What do commercials say? Uh, you, you probably have seen this commercial before, right? A, a man with a slick and trim suit steps out from a spotless Lamborghini. He is rugged. And yet every hair is perfectly placed. Everyone in the, fr- in the club wants to be his friend. Everywhere he goes, he is the most popular man in town. Why? Oh, it's because he, he holds this drink in his hand. He never drinks it. He, he just holds it. And, and the promise there, hey, if you hold this drink in your hand, you will be the most popular man in town as well. But, but what if these commercials actually told the truth? What, what would they show? What scene would they paint? Would they show that scene of that friendless man at the end of the bar? Would they show a man who has deserted his family because he can't give up the bottle? Would they, would they show a man who has spent every last penny of his paycheck that last week? Would they tell the truth? And this is the reality that we live in, right? Commercials don't always tell the truth. And now, in the same way, 
Let me say this. The life without Christ doesn't tell the truth. The life without Christ is a lot like a commercial. It presents something that is not totally accurate. It's trying to sell you something. It's trying to make you dissatisfied with your life. It is a lot like a commercial. What does the Christless commercial claim? What do you see in unbelievers' lives? They don't experience any difficulties, right? They seem to be doing so well in life. They live such long and happy lives. They are so beautiful. They are so attractive. They don't have problems and worries like me. They seem so confident and so certain of everything they do. They seem to get away with everything. As a matter of fact, they're proud of that. They boast about how much they have and how much they've gotten. They get everything they want. They never have to say no. They can stay up as late as they want on Saturday nights. They can sleep in as long as they want on Sunday mornings. They don't ever experience this problem called guilt. They get the cars, the houses, the vacations they want. They can date whoever they want. They can look at anyone they want. That's the the commercial. That's the picture. By the way, that's, that's a loose paraphrase from Psalm 73. The psalmist there is struggling. He is troubled by the peace and by the prosperity of sinners around him. 73 verse 4 it says they have no pangs unto death their bodies are fat and sleek they don't have any problems they seem to be doing so well they're so beautiful they are so attractive psalm 73 verse 5 says they are not troubled as others are they are not stricken like the rest of mankind they don't have problems and worries like me. Psalm 73, 6 says, Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. They are so confident, so certain about everything they do. They seem to get everything they want, and they're proud of it. Psalm 73, verse 7, Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They get everything they want. They can look at anything they want. They can do anything they want. This is is a reality that a follower of God lives with. They look at the lives of people around them and they struggle with those things. They struggle with those commercials. And, And you struggle with those commercials. And if you are not wise, you will collapse under the weight of those commercials and follow after them. How can we be wise? How can we grow in wisdom? We can know the truth. We can hear the word of God. The the psalm goes on to say, I thought this way 
until in verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So, let's be wise. What if the commercials of the Christless life told the truth? This morning we are going to watch four honest ads about the Christless life. Four honest ads about the Christless life. And by the way, if you are an unbeliever, these are honest ads about your life. This is what you have bought into. This is what you believe. These are honest ads about you, though. We're in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Turn with me there. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Ephesians, you could split into half. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 talk about the worthy position of those who are in Christ. And and chapters 4 through 6 talk about the, the new and worthy life of the follower of Christ, the believers. A matter of fact, 4 verse 1 really functions as a good pivot, as a hinge verse. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy. You, you are worthy, now walk worthy. And, and now here in 4 verse 17, as Paul is talking about the new life of the believer, as Paul is exhorting them, to walk in this new way. He is going to remind them of the old life. And he is going to paint an honest picture of that life. Let's, let's read together. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So here we have the four honest ads of the Christless life or the unbeliever's life. And for clarity's sake, I'll just give you those ads right now. It is a frustrated life. It is a dark life. It is an antagonistic life. And it's a reckless life. So our our first ad of the Christless life is it is a frustrated life. it's, It's empty. It's pointless. It's meaningless. It's vain. What makes something frustrating? Regardless of how many times you try something, you you still get the same result. I I turn the key in my ignition, and nothing happens. Regardless of how many times I turn that key. I, I go to the hood, I open, I take a good long look at the engine, it looks dirty, I don't know. I, I pull out that little dipstick thing. I clean it really good because I always see people cleaning it and I put it back in and nothing changes. Frustrating. I've done everything that I've seen 
normal people do. Frustration sometimes, often, as in my case, comes from not understanding something or doing something wrong again and again and again, right? The, the unbeliever's life is a life of frustration. It is a frustrated life. Verse 17, uh, it talks about the futility of their minds. They walk about. They live their life. This is how they, they go about their life in the futility of their minds. The word their minds is, is a, broad, a, a broad concept, broader than just intellectual ability. It refers to the whole state of affairs in their innermost being. They are frustrated not just in their thinking. They're, they're frustrated in their purposes, in their willing, in their loving, in their feeling, everything. Their innermost being is experiencing this constant state called frustration. Futility. This word actually, when, when the Old Testament was translated into, into Greek... This word was used in the Old Testament 52 times, futility. And, and it's, this is very interesting. 39 of those times occur in one book. Ecclesiastes. The word vanity. Let me just show you a few examples of what is futile, what is frustrating, what is vain, what is vanity. Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, the preacher says, Vanity of vanities. All is Vanity. Life is futile. Life is this thing called striving after the wind. Try doing that this afternoon. Going down in verse 9, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Life is redundant, he's saying. Nothing is ever new. It's like it's like one of those old LP records that's broken and it keeps skipping back and back and back and you never hear anything new. It just keeps going and going and going and keeps replaying and replaying. Nothing is ever new. It's broken. Oh, look. An evil dictator. What's new? Oh, look. Greed and injustice. What's new? Oh, look. Lust and adultery. What's new? Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. The preacher says, I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. The cheer of wine and strong drink dries up. Matter of fact, he says down in verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. But even with money, he discovers he can't take it with him. It's vanity. Now, now listen to this. There, are, there is pleasure to be found. He, he says in verse Nine, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom re- remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For, look at this, 
my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all of my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, still all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Yeah, there, there is some pleasure to be found, but in the end, it's vanity. It's, it's, like, it's like taking the biggest bucket you can find and filling it to the brim with water and going up to the, the Mojave Desert in triple-digit weather and dumping it out. That water disappears. It goes down the cracks. It evaporates in the sun, right? It doesn't last. Now, let's be honest. As we saw, there is pleasure to be found in this world. Ecclesiastes goes on to talk about how hard work brings pleasure. This is good to pursue hard work. But let's be equally honest. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. Rust happens. Age happens. It doesn't last. And and this is the whole direction, the whole inner being of the unbeliever's life. It is rooted in this concept of futility. It is aimless. They don't really know what they want. It, it It is pointless. You want to listen to some discouraging quotes Look up some quotes of people who die without Christ. It is powerless. It's it's, it's a life that's constantly going around trying to grip something that it cannot find. What are people after? What are we trying to grab hold of? We're trying to find joy, right? We're, We're after joy. There's this sense of satisfaction this sense of contentment, this, this thrill. C.S. Lewis wrote this book. It was an autobiography. He called it Surprised by Joy. It was, it was all about his, his coming to Christ. And, and he, it's so interesting, he, he, he talks about how as an unbeliever, as an atheist, he was searching for this thing called, capital J, joy. And, and he thought he found it sometimes in, in, in a piece of literature. Or, or in a piece of music. He was like, there it is, joy. And then he would go back to that book, back to that song, and it was as if joy took up wings and flew away. He didn't know that this joy that he was after was a person, and he couldn't find it. Everywhere, everyone is on a quest for meaning. Maybe they pursue it in their intellect, but so often it ends up in madness and frustration. Sometimes people pursue meaning in pleasure, but, but it results in, in evaporating and passing experiences. Sometimes people pursue meaning in some sort of substance, but all they get is emptiness, loneliness, dependency. Some people look for joy in power or, or in sports. But, but, but all they get is the experience of being replaced when someone younger than them shows up. And, and this is the old life. An honest ad about the old life. It is a frustrating life. Why? Why is it frustrating? Let's, let's look at the next honest ad of the Christless life. Paul 
goes even deeper into the human condition for us. Not only is it a frustrated life, it is a dark life. Uh, Verse 18, they are darkened. They are darkened in their understanding. They are hindered. They are blocked. Their their vision is, is obstructed like it is in the smog here. They can't see that mountain so clearly over there. Ever go into a cave on like a cave tour? What, what always happens on these cave tours? The tour guide brings you into the darkest point. He says, okay, everybody turn out the lights. And then you start getting dizzy and start walking on the ceiling, right? It's like that. Where are they darkened? It says, in their understanding. This, this word, probably more than mind, above refers more clearly to the intellect, their, their mental conclusions, their understanding. So, so here we see that the, the unbeliever has, has huge hurdles to God. And, and they're not just hurdles that are outside them. They are hurdles that are inside them, in their natures, in who they are. Man on his own cannot find God. Like that man in the cave who cannot find the exit. Man has this condition, and it's called total inability. Now, that's, that's a loaded statement, total inability. Let, let's dig a little bit more into that. Does this align with the picture in Scripture that we see about man? Well, first off, God's Word tells me that apart from Christ, I lack spiritual goodness. Apart from Christ, I am completely lacking in spiritual goodness. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That word all is a really tricky word that means everybody. And and even in the, the context of Romans, you see that refers to the Jews, those people who have the law of God, who know who God is, and that refers to the Gentiles, those people who do whatever they want. Everybody is included in that term all. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God, no matter where you live, what home you grew up in. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2, 1 says, I'll change it a little bit. You are spiritually dead in sin, it tells the sinner. That's what God's word tells us. We lack spiritual goodness. God's word also tells us that we are totally unable to do spiritual good. Not only do I lack spiritual goodness in myself, I am unable to do spiritual good. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we all become like, we all have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart there is no God, they are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there, there is none who does good. And then in verse 2 it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. He's looking at everybody, and he says this in chapter in verse 3, They all have turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of God, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
He is unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, 8 says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You have as much ability to do spiritual good as a dead man has to move his finger. Jesus says this in John eight thirty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, that's everybody, is a slave of sin. And so this is man's condition outside of Christ. A very bleak picture, right? He is a slave of sin. He is spiritually bankrupt. Jesus says later in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. Here it is, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't just have no spiritual goodness in myself. I can't do anything that's spiritually good. Now, now I'm not saying that man can't do good things. They can't, the man can't do good humanitarian things. They can't be nice. They can't be kind. But what, I, but what I am saying is man can't do anything spiritually good before God. And that's what really and I'm not saying man is as bad as he possibly could be. But what I am saying, listen to me, man's condition in this state that he is in is total. He is totally unable. Every part of him is affected, is tainted, is influenced, is bent by sin. Man's wills, man's desires, man's emotions, yes, even his thoughts are affected, influenced by sin everywhere and everything he does. Here, a little illustration. So what is, so it's your turn to, to get bagels from Panera for your office. What is the veteran move that you do? You go in there, you'd like, hey, I'd like this many amount of bagels, but I want you to take that thing, that other bagel you have, that everything bagel, the bagel with onions in it, and I want you to put that in a Ziploc bag, and I want you to bring that out to the back of this building. I want you to throw it away. So it doesn't even get close to my purified bagels over here, okay? Because the minute that that bagel gets in, all those other bagels, what happens? Every bagel becomes an everything bagel. I don't want that. Not on my Cinnamon Toast Crunch bagel. Man, on his own, is totally unable to get to God. He is in a situation, a condition of his understanding that is darkened. I met a man, well, in seminary. We had this assignment. We had to go to a, to, to a local campus and, and, and do an outreach. And so, so I joined this local outreach a program, and I walked around with this other man. We were trying to talk to people about Jesus um, and share the gospel, hopefully. And, and I remember I met this guy at CSUN. He was, I kid you not, the smartest man that I have ever met in my entire life. 
You know someone is smart when they are articulating your arguments better than you do. He knew everything. He knew everything I was about to say. He knew all the verses I was about to quote. But yet he couldn't find sufficient proof for God. And so kind of at the end of the conversation, I was just, I was just curious more than anything else. I was like, well, excuse me, what would God have to do to convince you of his existence? What would God need to do? And, and the man said this, and it was striking to me, but it seemed very honest. It seemed very sincere. He said, if God wanted me to believe, he'd appear to me. He'd see how sincere I am in my unbelief. No argument was good enough. He needed God to appear to him in person. But, but why is that insufficient? That, that would be insufficient because it's not that the arguments are bad. It's because, it's because the mind is bad. In fact, even if God were to appear to someone, it wouldn't change their mind. Look, look over with me at Luke 16. Luke 16. There's this story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. One man goes to be with God. That's Lazarus. And the other man goes to hell, to Hades, to separation. And, and, and he got this chance in this parable that Jesus tells to talk to Abraham. And he's like, and he's going to make a plea, an appeal. He doesn't ask to be let out. He, he simply asks this. Verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send him, that is Lazarus, this man who rose from the dead, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And then Jesus says this striking thing in verse 31. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Neither should they be convinced if someone could show up and, and give them all these great testimonies. Neither would they be convinced if Jesus himself were to rise from the dead. Ephesians 4. They are darkened. It's, 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 it's picturing, the very, the very grammar there is picturing this persistent condition that results from a previous action. That previous action is that they are by nature this way, as it says us in, in, in Ephesians 2, 3. So, so here we have the position of the unbeliever. Unbelievers aren't unbelievers because at some point in their life they had all the evidence laid before them. And they had a free and fair choice to choose between God and atheism. No, they are unbelievers by nature. Now, now you may be struggling with this. Uh, you might be struggling a great deal with this. 
It, it doesn't sound possible to you. Surely if someone was to appear to them, if, if Jesus was to appear to them, they would hear, they would believe, they would change. But now Paul goes deeper into man's condition. It's, 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 it's a frustrated life. It's, it's a darkened life. Verse 18, they are darkened in their, their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Next honest ad, it is an antagonistic life. Alienated. What a word. It's, it's, a, it's a relational term, right? Right? They are estranged. They are separated. They are enemies of God. They are separated from the life of God, the only source of true and lasting joy. In other words, if God would show up, they would move in the opposite direction. They would head the other way. Why? Why would anyone run away from God? Why would anyone run away from joy? Well, the answer is simple. Because God, by his very presence, by his perfection, by who he is, demands repentance. He demands repentance. He says, forsake all the other things that you were seeking, all of those other joys that you were after, and come, find your highest joy in me. Look, look, where does the antagonistic life come from? Paul shows you right here. It's, it's not from your upbringing. It's not from your environment. It's not because someone convinced you of something. Look at what Paul says, Ephesians 4, 18. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, that condition that is persistent in their members and who they are. And, and this is not even the bottom of it. At the root of their condition, it is due to their hardness of heart bottom line reason let, let me just say it one this way intellectual atheism, atheism is really a heart condition intellectual atheism is really a heart condition i'm not saying this god's word is saying this look at god's word see what it says it is due to their hardness of hearts that's why they live the way they live that's why they do the things they do they don't like God. They don't want to be around God. They reject God. They are certain that joy must be found in something else. It can't be found in repentance and in faith and in relationship with this God. At the root of the Christless life, then, is hard-heartedness, willful unbelief, selfishness. It is out of the heart, too, that you desire and crave. It is out of the heart that you will for something. It is out of the heart that your mind embraces something. That is their condition. That is why they are in this condition called darkened. Jesus says in, in Mark seven twenty one through 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, 
theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Everything you do, every sin you commit, comes from your hard heart, what you believe. And and Scripture tells us this is a problem. This heart is a problem from the very moment of our birth. Psalm 58, verse 3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And in case you're thinking, hey, that's somebody else's problem, that's not mine, listen to a man called David, a man who is after God's own heart. Behold, it says in Psalm 51, verse 3, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Martin Luther says this thing. He says, No one is a blank slate. We all enter this life bent inward, bent towards ourselves, our way. We are equally and totally bent by sin. We all come out of our mothers this way. Obvious example. The the seven laws of the preschooler. The seven laws by which you, as a person in their presence, must live in order to have joy and happiness in their presence. Law number one, if I'm playing with it, it's mine. Law number two, if I'm looking at it, it's mine. Law number three, if I'm thinking about it, it's mine. Law number four, if you're playing with it, it's mine. Law number five, if you're looking at it, it's mine. Law number seven, if you are even thinking about it, it's mine. And law number seven, that was six, this is seven. If, if you're having any fun with anything at all, it is better that you just get out of my sight altogether. I, I'm not sure exactly at this point what I want, but I'm pretty sure this, you having fun, is not a part of it. Abide by these simple rules, and you can be in my presence. Now, now, important question, right? Are all hard hearts the same? Is the heart of a preschooler the same as the heart of an 80-year-old? Let's, let's do a quick little theology on hard hearts really quick. There, there are two kinds of hard-heartednesses in, in, in Scripture. There's the natural hard heart, and then there's the developed hard heart. Similar to how in, in Proverbs we see two kinds of fools. One fool is, is a hardened fool, and the other one simply needs the rod of discipline to drive that foolishness out of his heart. So, so first off, we see there, there's this thing called a naturally hard heart. This is, this is what we are conceived in. We come out selfish. We, we are all preschoolers by nature. I don't have to sit down with my daughters every morning. Okay, let's go through the seven preschool laws here. You were doing a little bit too good, Jane, the other day. I think you've got you to gotta listen to these laws a little bit more. No, we, we all are this by nature. Unless this kind of hardness, this selfishness is driven out by the rod of discipline, it will will only get more selfish and more hard. And it will get more smart as to how to hide this hardness as well. By the way, I tell students about this all the time. Praise God that you're in in a home where discipline happens. Do you realize that? That God is driving from you a heart that will lead you to destruction and folly. Do you realize that? 
What happens if you don't receive correction? You, you get a developed hard heart. This comes from persistent rejection of truth and of correction. Persistent rejection of God's word. In other words, let me say it this way. You get on the road of defiant and, and arrogant hardness by entering on the entry ramp of selfishness and, and subtle unwillingness. There's an entry ramp that gets you up to speed. And some of, some of you get up to speed a little bit faster than others. Let me ask you this question. Is your life characterized by unwillingness? Unwilling. Are you unwilling to be seen as wrong? Are you unwilling to understand the criticism from the other side? Are you unwilling to think critically about anything? You just let life go. Are you unwilling to confess when you are clearly in the wrong? Are you unwilling to forgive someone you've sinned against or, or who sinned against you? Are you unwilling to seek restoration? Because, because that would mean you'd actually have to admit you're part of the problem. Are you unwilling to put away foolish behavior? Are you unwilling to pursue a life of self-control? Are you unwilling to give something up in your life? Are you unwilling to suffer for following Jesus? Are you unwilling to hear God's word? Are you participating in less Bible study or more? Are you listening to less sermons or more? Now, now Christians aren't perfect. But they have been given this amazing thing by God's grace called a new heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, are being perfected into the image of Christ from one degree of glory into another. Which road are you on? The road of increasing willingness, the increasing obedience, or unwillingness, hardness? So here we have the, the three ads that we've watched so far. The, the Christless life, if we're honest about it, is a frustrated life. It's a dark life. It's, it's an antagonistic life. Fourthly, it's a, it's a reckless life. It's a life without a rudder. It's, it's drifting. It has no sense of right and wrong. This, this is the, re, the result of all of these other things. Who is a reckless individual? Someone who has lost his fear of consequences. I had this coworker once who said, I'm willing to pay later for my life choices now. Verse, verse 19, we see this playing out. They have become callous. This is, this is the resulting condition of all of these other things previously talked about. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Callous. If you're a guitar player, this is a good thing. That means you play so much that you no longer feel the pain of those strings against your finger. You, you, you have developed this hardness in your fingers. If you buy new shoes, this is a good thing. You develop calluses on your feet so you can walk without pain. But in moral terms... This means your conscience isn't pricked like it used to be. 
It means that you have built up this thing called moral immunities. That's frightening. The, the former things that, that, that used to bring joy no longer do. You, matter of fact, you need stronger things, more powerful substances. You are immune to any to caution from from your conscience. You are immune to the difference between right and wrong. Romans one tells us this, beginning in verse twenty-eight. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And, and, in, and in Titus... Paul warns of these individuals who are subordinate and insubordinate and empty talkers, deceivers, false teachers. And he says this in Titus 1, verse 15, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Moral immunities. Now, now there's an upside to this, Right? You can do more bad things and not feel as bad about it. But there's a big downside to it too, right? You have to do more bad things to get the same joy out of it. You can't feel the sting of sin anymore. You go right along your merry way to hell desperate frustrated lost what, what is the result he says uh, sensuality they have given themselves up to sensuality they are they live a life that's dependent on self indulgence they they are greedy he says greedy to practice every kind of impurity it's, it's a life that finds pure things unsatisfying, repulsive even. It just can't get enough of impurity. This is the honest picture of the Christless life. It is, it is frustrated. It's a life that's not all it's cracked up to be. It is, it is dark. They're going around in circles in that cave. They can't find God. And it's also antagonistic. Even if they ran into him, they wouldn't want to be near him. And it's reckless. It's always needing more. And it's never finding enough. This is the honest picture of the Christless life. Before we close, let's, let's just come up for air. What, what is the life? What is the life of the believer like? What are some honest ads of the believer's life? Let's read the rest of Ephesians 4. But that, 4 verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. 
assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, therefore, having put away falsehood, because you have put away falsehood in Christ Jesus, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. As God in Christ forgives you. What are the honest ads of the Christ-like life? It is a life that can do something different. It is a life that can put off old ways and can put on new ways. It is a life, glorious is it not, that is being daily renewed. The lights are turning on brighter and brighter every day, every time you open up God's Word. It is a life that has a new self. And, and look at that. It is a life that, that is lived in an already accomplished victory. And, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, you already have a victory that is determined that you walk in all of Ephesians 1 through 3. In, in, in the final months of World War II in Europe, uh, when the Allies were beginning to surround Germany and, and all of Hitler's evil had been exposed, but, but Hitler had not been fully defeated yet, had the Allies won the war? They, they were closing in. Hitler was basically defeated, but they still had to fight street by street, block by block, house by house, yet they were fighting a war that was won. They were fighting an enemy as vicious and as evil as he was who was defeated. That's what we have in Christ Jesus. Victory. Victory over sin in ourselves and power by the grace of God through His Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in Christ Jesus. That's what we have. Ephesians 2 says, 
and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which, you, in, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among we, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Praise God. Praise God this life is not yours anymore. By grace you have been saved. Let's pray. Our gracious God who saves us not because of any goodness in us or any goodness that we do but saves us by your own love by your own mercy we praise you for your grace. And, and we ask that you would help us to not be duped by the world, that we would walk wisely, that we would walk worthy as your people. We pray these things in your name. Amen.